This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the Podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent Royal Hundred course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. Just a quick bit of housekeeping before we get started. Here at The Feast, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, exactly what you want. So for the month of October, we're going to be running some listener giveaways, as well as including some new Patreon-supported rewards. But first, we want to know what you want to get out of The Feast. Is it bonus episodes? Free t-shirts? Great recipes from the past delivered straight to your door? We've created an easy online poll so you can tell us exactly what rewards interest you as a listener. You can vote on what you would like to see as a listener giveaway or a Patreon reward. The poll is running over on our Twitter and Facebook pages and will be available until Friday, September 22nd. The polls will only take you two minutes max. It's only two questions. And remember, you get to vote on exactly what you want to see most out of the feast. You can find our Facebook page via The Feast Podcast or on Twitter at Feast underscore podcast. Remember, the poll is only up until midnight on Friday, September 22nd, so don't forget to vote. And we'll be revealing the results of our poll on our next episode. And starting in October, listen for those listener giveaways on our upcoming episodes. Remember, you can find the poll on Twitter or our Facebook page. Okay, enough housekeeping. On to today's episode. Today we're doing things a little differently. We're not telling you one great story of food that changed history, but two. It's the story of two women, two cooks actually, who, through their cooking, made their mark on the history of the United States. Now, these women never met, Actually, they're separated in time by almost 100 years. But they shared a career that few people can claim. They both cooked for the President of the United States. They share something else, too. They were both African Americans. In fact, there's a long and too often unsung history of African American cooks who literally kept the U.S. presidency running with their food. It's a history that thankfully has been recently uncovered by the sole food scholar himself, Adrian Miller, whose 2017 book explores this very topic, called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. Now, as the title suggests, Miller traces the history of African American presidential cooks over three centuries from the Revolutionary War to the 21st century. But today we're going to take just two of the cooks he talks about. Laura Johnson, 
also known as Dolly, who actually cooked for two U.S. presidents at the end of the 19th century, William Harrison and Grover Cleveland. And we'll also look at Zephyr Wright, who was the personal cook for Lyndon Baines Johnson in the 1960s, including, crucially, the signing of the Civil Rights Bill in 1964. Miller's book takes its title from a unique American presidential convention, dating all the way back to President Andrew Jackson, who in the 1820s and 1830s famously relied on a network of close friends and colleagues in Washington, D.C. to determine his presidential policy. Now, thanks to a massive scandal known as the Petticoat Affair in 1831, Jackson, who had always been a bit of a firebrand in personality, had demanded the resignation of his cabinet, a group of politicians that usually includes the vice president, as well as the heads of executive departments like agriculture, defense, education, etc. Now, if you think modern politics is nasty and backhanded, look up the Petticoat Affair. It's got all the sex, intrigue, backstabbing, and gossip you could ever want. House of Cards meets the 1830s, if you will. Although a new cabinet was appointed, Jackson was clearly done with the group, and took instead to relying on his friends or informal advisors. Newspapers soon began calling this new group the Kitchen Cabinet, apparently because they secretly would meet in Jackson's study, accessing it via the back stairs in the White House kitchen. Ever since, the term Kitchen Cabinet has been applied to a president's non-official advisors, those who have the president's ear for a variety of reasons— whether because they're old friends or because they're simply people the president trusts. And think about trust when it comes to cooking. If you don't trust the person making your food, who can you trust? Cooking in the White House is a very particular kind of job. Maybe because the White House is a very particular kind of place. It's an office, certainly, the seat of the executive branch of the U.S. government. But it's also a home the official residence of the president and his immediate family. It's also, of course, an event space, holding opulent black-tie dinners for up to hundreds of foreign heads of state and diplomats at a time. That means today, the kitchens at the White House are responsible for everything from a president's late-night hankering for a grilled cheese, to providing meals for the government workers who have their offices on site, to serving hundreds of elegant haute cuisine meals for state dinners. To keep everyone happily fed, it means a host of cooks can be on staff at any given time at the White House. And today, there's a specifically designated position to serve at the head of that team, known as the White House Executive Chef, currently Christetta Comerford, hired by former First Lady Laura Bush in 2005. But it wasn't always this way. Most of the cooks in White House history have been accidental in the sense that they've been um, personal cooks or longtime servants of someone who becomes president. And uh, that president brings them to the White House, mainly because they want to have good cooking and some continuity and connection to home cooking, but also because they saved money. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know this, but most presidents up until Truman had to pay for all of their dining expenses and staff and servant expenses out of their own pocket. That's Adrian Miller. And when he talks about food in the White House, he's doing more than just guessing. The way I got into this writing is I was in the political 
legal realm. I'm a lawyer by profession, and then I went into politics, and I started at the top. I actually worked for President Bill Clinton in the White House the very end of his second term. As Miller says, for most of presidential history, from Washington to Truman, you had White House cooks, but technically no White House executive chef. At least, not how the role works today. They had a head cook, because the term executive chef doesn't come into existence until 1961 when Jacqueline Kennedy creates that title. Um, Before that, they were called head cook or first cook. You had maybe two or three assistants uh, who had various roles, and there was one cook who was dedicated to cooking just for the resident staff. Um, And then there was uh, kitchen helpers. They called them scullions, and so their job was to wash dishes and check the equipment. So even today, the White House staff is going to have the executive chef, uh, a pastry chef, and the pastry chef may have an assistant, and then there'll be maybe two or three assistant chefs just to help out with things, and then you have some dishwashers and other people. So if someone claims to be a White House chef, uh, you should be immediately skeptical because that is a very limited number of people who can actually claim that. There are a lot of people that help out. Um, they're loaned from other agencies, or uh, when there's a state dinner that has to be done, they'll come in and help because the White House kitchen is very small. It's only 26 um, feet by 30 feet. So what, what happens is you'll have people that work in the White House mess or who cook at Camp David or who are on Air Force One or maybe have guest chef for a president calling themselves a White House chef because that's very marketable. Since the position was created in 1961, there have been seven executive chefs at the White House, including the current one, Chris Comerford. Ms. Comerford is actually the first woman to be appointed to the role. But if we dig into the history of presidential cooks, she's only the latest in a long line of women who have cooked for U.S. presidents, stretching back to George Washington himself. So most cooks, most White House cooks were women. And of those women, most of them were African-American women. So the earliest accounts that we have, we know that Washington had a woman cooking for him named Mrs. Reed. This was back when the executive residence was in Philadelphia. She only lasts six months, um, and he fires her and brings his enslaved cook, Hercules, up from Mount Vernon to cook for him. Um, We know that Jefferson had two enslaved women cooking for him, Frances Hearn and Edith Fawcett. Uh, And the thing about them is that they lived their lives year-round in the White House kitchen, despite the miserable conditions that would happen in the summer. I mean, there were accounts in the 1800s of White House workers getting tropical diseases. So, you know, it was just not a pleasant place um, all the time. And they gave birth to children in the White House basement. Some of them died. Uh, they were separated from the families. There are accounts of their husbands escaping Mon- Monticello just to connect with them. And the husbands are stopped short of the White House and sent back. So, and we don't have the names for everyone, but uh, there were some other women who cooked um, in those years. And then we know that uh, Abraham Lincoln had a couple of women who cooked for him. There was one named uh, Susan Mitchell who cooked for him in the White House, and then another woman named Mary Dines who cooked for him when he would retreat to the old summer home, uh, old soldier's home in upper uh, Washington, D.C. This tradition of African-American cooks carried through the Civil War and into post-emancipation America. And as many African-Americans moved north in the years of the 1860s and 1870s, many went into business as restaurateurs and caterers in the D.C. area. James Wormley, an African-American businessman, opened a high-end hotel within walking distance of the White House right around this time. 
frequently catering presidential and military events. In 1865, he was lauded for catering a banquet for the 1st District of Columbia Troops Regiment, a regiment made up entirely of African-American soldiers. By that point, Wormley had also made such a name for himself in the area and at the White House that he was selected to serve as an honorary pallbearer at Abraham Lincoln's funeral. But what about after the Civil War, into the 1880s and 1890s? Let's settle in on the year 1889. Benjamin Harrison has just been elected president, defeating the incumbent, Grover Cleveland. Now, Harrison may not be the most memorable of U.S. presidents, his major claim to fame often being that he was simply the grandson of another president, William Henry Harrison. So in 1889, President Benjamin Harrison and his wife Caroline faced the task of moving into the White House and setting up a home for themselves. In particular, finding someone who'd be willing to cook for them. And it's here that we pick up the story of one of the most celebrated presidential cooks in White House history, Laura Dolly Johnson. Unfortunately, we know little about the early days of this legendary White House chef. We know Johnson was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1852, and it's possible that she may have had her own catering company in the area by her early 30s. But as far as getting to the White House, Laura Johnson's path was a little unusual. Remember, at the time, most presidents simply brought their personal cook with them to the White House. It was rare for a president to specifically hire or appoint someone for the job. This is almost 80 years before Jackie Kennedy would even invent the position of executive chef. But Laura Johnson's cooking was apparently legendary. So legendary, in fact, it attracted the notice of a young upstart politician named Theodore Roosevelt. Adrian Miller tells us the story. Laura Dolly Johnson comes on the scene because a young politico named Theodore Roosevelt is spending some time in Lexington, Kentucky, and he goes to this guy named Colonel John Mason Brown's house for dinner. And Laura Johnson happened to be the cook for uh, Colonel Mason, or Colonel Brown. And um, she, so what happens is Roosevelt is so impressed by her, her cooking that he actually recommends her to Benjamin Harrison when he becomes president. And there's some back and forth, and then eventually Harrison does convince her to come to the White House. And the interesting thing about that is there was already a um, French chef on staff named Madame Pignard, and she was not too happy about this. And she, this very French cook had two American responses to the situation. Uh, she filed a lawsuit against the president. So this is the first known example of a White House staffer suing a president. And uh, she goes to the press bad-mouthing the Harrison's eating habits. Uh, their chief thing was eating a lot of pie, especially for breakfast. Madame Payunard's critiques highlighted an ongoing tension in what I'll call the U.S. presidential food scene. Since the days of Thomas Jefferson, maybe even earlier, presidents have faced an interesting choice on what kind of cooking would feature on White House plates. As many a president has realized, what the commander-in-chief chooses to eat goes a long way in telling the U.S. public what kind of person he is. Whether on the campaign trail or in the Oval Office itself, 
Presidents have realized that the food they eat can speak just as loudly about their connection to the American people as any speech to Congress. Should the president be eating the highest, most elegant cuisine available, a way to show off to diplomats and heads of state that American kitchens rival the most refined kitchens elsewhere in the world? Or should the president's diet reflect the everyday food of the American people, more casual fare like cheeseburgers or chicken wings, even regional specialities like clam chowder or shrimp and grits. Google image search any politician running for president over the last 20 years, and there's inevitably a photo of them enjoying a cheeseburger or barbecue rib. But this is nothing new. And when we go back to Harrison's presidency of 1889, we find the exact same dilemma. What should the White House be cooking? French food, for example? The elite cuisine of the late 19th century? or proudly regional American specialities. Because French cooking was the standard for high class, uh, even well into the, definitely during the 1800s, but well into the 1900s. You know, some would say, no, we should favor our regional American cooking. And uh, so there was always this tension. So Jefferson is the first to hire a French chef um, who was running the kitchen. The, the two enslaved women I talked about earlier were, were assistant chefs for him. Uh, and it just depended on how um, presidents felt about France. Some were Francophiles, like James Monroe. So we had a lot of French. Uh, then others were like, no, nah, I want to show my American bona fides. And so they would have American cooks. So it, it kind of goes back and forth. And this tension between France and, and American is, is ongoing and even plays out in wine. And part of it is when, when a president loves French food and, and any kind of foreign food, it seems like they're out of touch and aristocratic. And so a president knows ultimately that his cachet is within uh, having popular support. And one of the best ways to connect with, uh, you know, the, the people is through food and showing that you like your comfort foods of your childhood or you like American foods that are popular. And uh, in terms of reputation, um, and I think that's the case today, Southern cooking was probably the most celebrated regional cooking in America at that time. There was a rivalry within the United States between New England cooking and Southern cooking. And, um, but Southern cooking, I think, was more celebrated. And Laura Johnson, a cook hailing from Kentucky, proudly represented the specialities of the American South. It was only a matter of time for Madame Peunard. Apparently, claims of eating too much pie for breakfast don't really hold up in court. So they, they end up working out. The, the, yeah, the lawsuit does not proceed, and eventually uh, Dolly Johnson is installed as the head cook of the White House. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. And there are newspaper headlines all across the nation announcing her hire. 
Um, she stays at the, in the Harrison White House only for a few months, though, because her daughter gets sick. So she goes back to Lexington, Kentucky to care for her. But when Grover Cleveland wins his second time around and defeats Harrison, uh, Grover Cleveland convinces her to come back and be his White House. So Johnson ended up cooking for not just one U.S. president, but two. And even after her days in the White House, Johnson continued in the catering industry, returning to Lexington, Kentucky, and opening up several restaurants, proudly advertising her experience as a presidential cook. She's one of the few examples of an African-American chef parlaying her notoriety as a White House chef into uh, a successful venture. So uh, she ends up going back to Lexington, Kentucky, and um, runs a restaurant. And in the newspaper, she advertises Dolly Johnson, famous White House cook. To understand an African-American woman doing that at that time is pretty remarkable. While Johnson's cooking may have been legendary, unfortunately, few of her recipes survive. Miller was only able to discover a handful of clues that suggest what Johnson may have been cooking for Presidents Harrison and Cleveland, with one notable exception. We don't have her recipes, per se, at least not at this point. What we do know is that Caroline Harrison, who was Benjamin Harrison's first lady and wife, um, she loves something called deviled almonds. Dolly Johnson was in the White House during her time, and she undoubtedly prepared those for uh Caroline Harrison. So I include that recipe in my book as kind of a shout out to Dolly Johnson, even though we don't have her recipe per se. We do have something that she was likely to have cooked for Caroline. We've included the recipe of Johnson's deviled almonds on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. So you can make this 19th century presidential classic at home. Records show that Dolly Johnson's restaurants and catering company lasted into the 1910s and she died at the age of 66 in 1918, buried in Lexington, Kentucky, the town in which she was born. Her life illustrates the remarkable changes the U.S. had undergone in that short time, from slave-owning days before the Civil War to an era when African Americans could make a profitable career as a chef with the freedom to decide when and where that career was headed. Johnson gave up the White House position when family duties called, but returned just as easily, finally transitioning that status to her own success as a restaurateur and caterer in Lexington. Of course, her story is unique in many ways. Over the next several decades, many African-American cooks worked in the White House, but often in relative obscurity, few receiving the newspaper accolades that Johnson enjoyed during her career. Some exceptions were Ida Allen, the head White House cook under Franklin D. Roosevelt, or John Money Jr., who served as General Eisenhower's personal valet during World War II, responsible for cooking most of the general's meals, including on D-Day itself, June 6th of 1944. Money continued to work for Eisenhower after he became president in 1953. Known for his love of barbecue, Ike and Money apparently collaborated on a number of grilling adventures, thanks to the grill Ike insisted be set up on the White House roof. But few stories of White House cooks can match that of the formidable Zephyr Wright, head cook, and even temporarily White House executive chef to Lyndon Baines Johnson. 
Yeah, if I, if I could think of one person out of all the interesting characters uh, I unearthed in this book, I mean, she is probably the one I would want to talk to the most because she seemed um, very formidable. Um, she was a great cook. Uh, she seemed pretty funny. And, you know, she didn't take any mess from LBJ. Because, you know, most of the stories and pictures you see of LBJ is he was not one to suffer fools and uh, was pretty abrasive. And uh, she gave it right back to him, especially when she had to keep him on his diet. Like Dolly Johnson, Zephyr Wright's legendary cooking was her path to the White House. But her relationship to LBJ began long before his presidential career. It was kind of typical in those days for uh, families of means in the South to have an African-American cook, at least as a private cook. So uh, back in the 40s, Lady Bird Johnson, um, who was from the same area as Zephyr Wright, Marshall, Texas, uh, was back visiting friends and was just asking for recommendations for a cook. And through her uh, social network, uh, someone recommended Zephyr Wright, who was a college graduate, actually, from Wiley College in Marshall. And she was uh, in nutrition or home economics. And so that's how she enters the orbit of the Johnsons. And so she's a private cook for them from the 40s on. In fact, many attribute Johnson's rise in Congress to uh, Zephyr Wright's good food. Because back in those days, believe it or not, members of Congress would have others over for dinner and they would get to know each other. And many would not pass up an opportunity to have some of Zephyr Wright's food. She becomes a family confidant. She actually sits in the inauguration box with the family when Johnson is sworn in to office. Uh, I don't think a cook has, I don't think any other cook has had that happen. She is a steady performer in the kitchen, and uh, eventually when the French chef resigns in disgust because of the things that Johnson was asking him to make, uh, Zephyr Wright is actually running the White House kitchen operations until another chef gets hired. A classically trained French chef complaining about a president's choice of food? Sound familiar? Yes, although almost a hundred years had passed, that tension between French haute cuisine and American regional classics still plagued the dinner plates of the White House. But as Miller says, LBJ wasn't really the type to take any guff from anyone, including a French chef. So René Verdon was a French chef hired by the Kennedys, um, Jacqueline Kennedy specifically, and he really cooked a lot of elevated cuisine, European continental cuisine. Well, you know, that wasn't President Johnson's vibe. He wanted Southern food, uh, comfort food, Tex-Mex. And so... uh, René Verdun often chafed at cooking the things that Johnson wanted. In fact, uh, you've heard of chili con queso, the kind of cheese dip with peppers in it? Yeah. Well, René Verdun called that chili concrete. You know, that was kind of the about it. So they went back and forth, and there was a lot of tension. And, um, you know, Verdun would be asked to make something, and he didn't make it right. And so Johnson would say to him, well, I'll have Zephyr show you how to cook it. And I'm sure that that really, really got his goat. Uh, so it got to a point where it was just untenable. So I don't think the tension was really between Verdun and Zephyr Wright. It was really between Johnson and Verdun. And so uh, it got to the point where Chef Verdun's uh, role was diminished and Zephyr was doing more and more cooking. And so, you know, it made sense for him to go. Verdun eventually left the White House in 1965, apparently after a particularly nasty incident in which he refused to make a cold garbanzo bean puree, a dish he detested. Now, I may be reading this wrong, but it sounds like he basically refused to make hummus. Who hates hummus? Anyway, 
Verdun was pretty vocal about the president's food choices. He was once quoted by the Washington Post as saying, You can eat at home what you want, but you do not serve barbecued spare ribs at a banquet with the ladies in white gloves. Well, try telling that to a president from Texas. After Verdun's departure, Wright took on his duties, basically acting in everything but title as executive chef. But there was one problem. She wasn't getting the salary of an executive chef. She was still being paid as a family cook, rather than the head of a presidential culinary team. Having gotten this promotion and increased duties, she immediately asked for a raise. <laughs> Which is just awesome. You know, she's like, look, I'm doing all this. Why am I getting paid like anybody else? Uh, and so she gets that raise. Uh, and then Henry Holler, uh, she only does this for a few months because um, Henry Holler gets uh, gets the job, and then he stays there for, I, I want to say, like 20 years until he resigned. He retired. Yeah, he retired during the Reagan administration. But just because there was a new executive chef in town didn't mean that Zephyr Wright was going down without a fight. She successfully argued that she had more seniority than Holler at the White House and therefore deserved a better salary. A fight. She eventually won. But the battles between French and American cooking weren't the only ones raging in the White House kitchen. As the president's personal cook, Zephyr Wright was also called in when a national crisis broke out when it was discovered that President Johnson didn't eat beans with his chili. A little episode we like to call Beangate. One of my biggest finds was they had a tape recording where Zephyr Wright talks about the president's bean preferences. The reason why this tape exists is that the White House in 1964 released a recipe for Texas chili. And anyone who knows Texas chili knows that Texas chili is beanless. So uh, a lot of Americans are used to chili with beans, and so people freak out. And they wanted to be reassured that their president liked beans. So this conversation is uh, Juanita Roberts, who was the social secretary for, a White House secretary for Johnson, um, talking to Zephyr Wright about all of the beans that the president likes so that the White House could go into uh, spin control. That's right. There is an official interview on record in which the president's cook actually lists his bean preferences. In case you were wondering, apparently Johnson preferred green, lima, and pinto beans. Specifically, pork and beans, cooked with a ham bone and hot pepper sauce. But what about that Texan chili recipe? The one that caused such a stir to begin with. Yeah, the Pertinalis River Chili, which is named after a river that flows by the Johnson Ranch in Central Texas. Uh, so the recipe was released. That's what precipitated the crisis, was the recipe being released. But La Lady Bird Johnson, in her memoirs, she said in 1964 that recipe card was the most requested document from the United States government other than information on the newly created Women and Children Nutrition Program. And it, it is a great recipe because it's a, it's a definitely, a, in today's mode, it's a DIY kind of chili, you know, very customizable. Um, you can, you know, you can add things to it. And yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's very meaty though. It's almost like a chili meatball. <laughs> We've put Zephyr Wright's famous Pedernelli's chili recipe up on our website, in case you want to try it yourself. We've made it here at home, and I have to say it is delicious, even without the beans. But we also can't ignore that this was the early 1960s, and Johnson's presidency was a turning point in race relations in the United States. 
Zephyr Wright was a woman who had personal experience of the culture of Jim Crow laws throughout the South. When Wright traveled with the Johnsons back and forth between D.C. and their home in Texas, hotels where the presidential family stayed would often refuse to host Zephyr for the night because of the color of her skin. Traveling through the area eventually became so unnerving that Zephyr chose to stay in the capital year-round, even when the Johnsons returned to Texas for holidays or family visits. LBJ knew of Zephyr's experiences, frequently drawing on them to condemn Jim Crow laws in the lead-up to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And when Johnson finally signed the bill into law, he made a note of giving Zephyr one of the pens he had used to sign it, saying, You deserve this more than anyone else. Zephyr announced her retirement from the White House in 1968, at the end of the Johnson administration. But although her days as the president's cook were over, she remained with the Johnson family for the next several years. That's really interesting, um, you know, because a lot of times with these family cooks, they often just stay with the family. Uh, but she does not return to Texas with the Johnsons. She actually ends up cooking for Linda Burr Johnson, who is the Johnsons' eldest daughter. Um, but she only does that for a, a short time. Uh, and then she's just kind of out there. She had talked about making a, a low-fat cookbook, which would have been fantastic. Uh, it would have been unusual for that time as well. But she had a, a tremendous amount of experience having cooked for Johnson and keeping him on his diet. But, you know, she just never she never gets to it. And um, she stays in D.C. until the 80s. Uh, I think she died in 1987. Um, so you, you only hear a little bit about her. She comes to some family, or a family, she comes to some White House employee reunions and parties, but you really just don't hear much about her after that. Zephyr's retirement marked the end of the personal presidential cook for almost 40 years. The rise of the White House executive chef took on the role of cooking for the first family, from the Nixons to the Bushes until 2006. And it was only with the election of President Obama that a personal family cook returned to the White House with Sam Cass, who stayed in the position until 2014. Miller's book goes a long way in uncovering the story of the many African Americans who have worked in the White House since the early days of the United States. And through his research, as Miller says, he's discovered just how influential a cook can be, using food as a tool of agency when no others are available. And Miller talks about the themes that pop up time and time again in the stories of those unrecognized members of the president's kitchen cabinet. One is that these African-Americans were culinary artists, frequently celebrated, but often unsung. Uh, They were also family confidants. There are a lot of stories of presidents feeling a connection to these cooks, Um, you know, sending gifts uh, when significant things happen with the family, showing up at their funerals, being very moved by the death of these cooks and servants. Um, At times, they were civil rights advocates, you know, Zephyr Wright, her Jim Crow experiences uh, inspired LBJ to move forward on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and he actually used anecdotes of her mistreatment in the South to persuade members of Congress to support the bill. I think overall, these African-American cooks gave our presidents a window on black life they may not have otherwise had. Now, a lot of presidents chose not to open that window, but for the ones who did, I think our nation has been better for it. That's Adrian Miller, author of The President's Kitchen Cabinet, 
the story of the African Americans who have fed our first families, from the Washingtons to the Obamas. He's also the author of the James Beard award-winning book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine. We'll put links to both his books up on our website, so you can learn the history of these unsung presidential cooks for yourself. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, who has requested we dedicate at least one night a week to making Zephyr Wright's Pedernales River Chili. Apparently, there's at least one Canadian who doesn't like beans in his chili either. Music featured on today's episode includes work by Jazar, the Edison Promenade Band, Fabian Measures, and Peter Rodenko. To find out more about these great artists, be sure to visit our webpage. And a huge thanks to Adrian Miller for taking the time to talk to us about these great White House chefs. He also chatted with us about his other hobby. He just so happens to be a professional barbecue judge. Now, if that isn't the best job in the world, I don't know what is. And just a bit of more news before we go. First, we've been getting lots of mail. Turns out, you've got questions about kitchens, recipes, all kinds of things about food and eating from the past. Everything from 19th century fork varieties to medieval chocolate currency. Starting with our next episode, we're going to answer your questions. Sometimes it'll be stuff we know, and sometimes, actually more usually, it'll be stuff we'll have to investigate. But we're here to answer all your food history questions, so start asking. You can send us questions via Twitter or Instagram. We're at feast underscore podcast or by old-fashioned email. We're at thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. Also, we've been getting lots of episode recommendations. So if there's a great meal from the past that you want to hear about, get in touch. We're always looking for new stories, so let us know if you have an idea about a meal that made history. And that's all for us this week. Don't forget about our listener rewards poll up on Twitter and Facebook, available until next Friday, September 22nd. And don't miss our next episode, where we talk with Tracy Curvels on the history of Middle Eastern communities in New York City. That's next time on The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.